Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. Today, I am super excited to have with us, instead of Sean Merwin, Kyle Brink, the Executive Director for the D&D Studio. Welcome, Kyle, to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm glad this to hear my it. Actual DM setup here. I, I run my games from this very chair. <laughs> That's nice. I like it. Very cool. Um, and, and I can see the wider shot, so I can see more of the things that are hanging on, on the walls. It's, it's very sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. And speaking of you running home games, uh, I have a, a Patreon subscriber who who says great things about you. Randy Farmer uh, was. Oh, off. Randy! Yeah, cool. Yeah, he's a nice really guy. really nice guy. So yeah. uh, I want to start with just a couple of sort of like you know approach for any folks who are out there listening. Most people who know our show know us and, and sort of how we operate on the show. But we we always provide our questions ahead of time. Uh, though I did send them this morning, so you haven't had all that much time to prep. Sorry. Um, but, but we did provide you our questions, uh, and we said yeah. that anything that you don't want to answer, you're absolutely welcome to say life is complicated because it is, I, we work with corporations and there are a lot of things that are, are just more complicated than one can explain in this kind of an environment. So you, you're always welcome to do that. And we're going to work on keeping this positive. So feel free to interject, ask questions, even questions of us, of the community, you know, absolutely do that. Sure. Yeah. Great. Cool. So let's start with what your D&D background is. How did you get started with D&D uh, as a I, DM or player? I learned D&D in 1978, which would have made me 11 years old. So uh, in sixth grade, um, and a friend of mine taught me how to play. Uh, and in so doing, earned himself the, uh, the teaching merit badge in Boy Scouts, <laughs> uh, which requires that you teach someone a complex skill. And the uh, scout master determined that that was complex enough to count uh, mm. as soon as he got a look at what we were doing. Uh, so I've been playing since then continuously. Um, and I've been dungeon mastering the same campaign continuously since 1988. That um, is an incredible achievement. Yeah, with some of the same players today, and some of them are bringing their kids to the table. So it's you know become a multi generational situation. We were going to talk about the OGO, but let's just talk about your home campaign all show long. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know when you go through all those edition changes, you got to come up with campaign reasons for that. So you know we got cataclysms that happened. There was one edition change that happened while they were moving across a magical lake, and they went through this mist and came out the other side, and they were changed. So everyone had to convert their characters Ooh. from second to third edition at that point, and. Uh, you know, so there was each time there was a new edition, I came up with another thing. Oh, there's, there's a cataclysm that broke magic. And so now magic works totally differently now. And, uh, you know, there, it was it was a lot of fun. And uh, it was one of those things where we've gone from one to 20 multiple times. And so as each time, as each party reaches 20, we retire that set of characters, advance the clock. And then the next set of characters begins with those characters as historical figures. Um, and so you sort of have uh -huh. this continuous yeah. feeling of you know time passing and being part of the world so it's a lot of fun and it's in the DD multiverse so they can still go to ravenloft or to you know forgotten yeah. realms or to Spelljammer or whatever uh, you know so, so i was going to ask is, is do you have a favorite setting that you draw into your home campaign a, a continuing theme has been ravenloft as you as you might guess mm -hmm. from the de decor uh and they are currently the current campaign is at 20th level in Ravenloft with Strahd as kind of the campaign ending big bad. And wow. so I've taken Curse of Strahd and leveled it up to 20. Uh, so it is a truly horrifying experience <laughs> uh, to be in that version of Ravenloft. Uh, and uh, my players are enjoying it, but I think they're also getting a little a little fatigued because Barovia takes it out of you. So <laughs> it sure does. It saps you yeah, in all the ways. 
Yeah. Do you yeah. have a favorite third party product that you bring into your games? Uh, uh, I have been uh, closely watching and uh, I'm about to join in on a, a Drakenheim um, mm. uh, play that uh, playthrough that some of my friends are doing right now. And it's the idea of that, you know, ruined city with all the crazy stuff that goes on in there uh, as a setting has been really fun to watch and really interesting to participate in. Awesome. So what was your role at Wizards before you became the executive director? Uh, so I've been there for two years. And when I first showed up, I was a director of operations for the larger studio that included Dungeons and Dragons as part of that larger mm -hmm. group. Uh, and then after the first year, I focused on the operations for D&D specifically. Um, and then a few months ago, I became the executive producer, which means running the, the game team. And mm -hmm. I see that as basically my job is to make it so the creators can create, get them the resources they need, make sure we've got a roadmap that we can all shoot for, um, you know, make it possible for the fun to happen and then get out of their way. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, there was a, a design studio blog that that kind of ran through the team uh, and how it operates. Is that largely still true, or has it changed since that publishing? I don't know. I don't, I haven't yeah. read that, so I can't tell you how it's different from that. That's fine. Um, maybe tell me what you know from that, and I can tell you how that's different. Well, I think it it talked about um, the 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 way the senior members were organized, how ideas are pitched uh, once per quarter, they're reviewed, and sort of like. I, I forget the exacts, but something like three quarters of the ideas might move on, others don't. And yeah, I was curious whether that it might be yeah, worth that's, taking a look at. That's it. all still true. Uh, we yeah. do it. We have a pitch process. Uh, we have people that you know make pitches, and we gather them up all together. It's approximately once per quarter. Uh, it's it also is partly driven by how many ideas we have, and we've got a, a body of them. We get together and and we review them. We determine which ones could be the seed of something else, which ones should really just be shelved, which ones we're kind of already addressing in another product, and which ones should be the the beginning of a, a whole new a whole new product. So we do still have a a pretty robust internal pitch process. It's um, like many pitch processes that I've been through. It it generally winnows out a lot more than it greenlights, but that's the point. Find the wow, best. Interesting. Um, how many people are on the team and how are they organized? So it's, uh, let's see, it's around 30 directly. However, we rely a lot on um, talent who are not full-time employees. Um, so a lot of our books have a lot of uh, what you might call outside contributors, but not really the outside. They're in the D&D community. They're in the creator community, same as we are. We just bring them in for this or that. Uh, particular bit of creative work. And so I think it's, I, I think of us as kind of 30 full-time employees and probably that many, again, regular outside folks that we work with um, who are great creators. And we're always looking for for new ones. So we're always watching what's going on in the mm -hmm. community and figuring out, hey, is this a good person to bring aboard for something and maybe write an adventure in an anthology. And if they do, they're great. And maybe get them a bigger piece of something later. So it's just a constant um, interaction back and forth with the creator community. Cool. And I would imagine Maybe it's not, but to me, it seems like this would be a hard team to run. You've got some big personalities with really deep expertise. You've got skilled new designers. How do you help everybody come together like a team and ensure that like a new designer will have a voice? So the my rule is generally um, hire people smarter than me and then help them do their jobs uh, because that's the best way to do it. If I try to take a direct hand in everybody's day to day, it's just going to be a mess because I'll be the bottleneck and that won't work. Uh, so what I typically, what I personally do for that process is I make sure that, first of all, everybody in the at the leadership level feels supported, heard, part of our decisions, knows what's going on, knows why we're doing it, and I provide a sense of stability because I make decisions based on logic, not on ego. Um, it's about me. My my approach is always to be uh, supportive, and uh, it's it's a a servant leadership model, which then echoes down into the organization. So if you're a junior designer coming aboard. 
your leader is looking to help you. Your leader is looking to, in many ways, serve you because that helps you improve. It, it's easier to take uh, guidance from someone who has your best interest at heart than someone who's just out for themselves. And so cultures oftentimes flow down from the top, but they provide benefits throughout. And so yeah. that whole idea of um, everybody being important, don't split the party, um, you know, always try to be the best uh, and, and servant leadership, I think is the main thing and open communication. Uh, you know, I'm the reason, one of the reasons I, I appreciate you sending your questions ahead of time, but I don't mind anybody asking any question and that's true <laughs> on my team. And that's true with you. I, I'm yeah. never afraid of questions because communication is the key. That's a good policy. So in, in the past, we've had some departures where it seemed like the designers left frustrated, like they didn't even have another job to go to. They were just like, I, I had to leave. I'm no longer with wizards. I'm, I'm just going to go find something else. Do, do you feel like those issues have been corrected? And is it now an environment where everybody contribute? Or is there work still ongoing to make that better? I think there's... Um... Uh, so not being able to speak to specific cases, sure. of course, but I, having managed creative teams for a long time, um, I can I, I can say that that's not an uncommon experience. Um, yeah. You know, creative people have differences of opinion. And in a creative organization, there are people who have the final say. Um, and if, I, if I'm trying to create something and I'm always feeling that I'm being frustrated by the person who has the final say, then I'm going to leave that creative organization and I should. Um, if it's, you know, if I'm not able to create the way I want to in that org, I should go someplace where I can. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, that in general, the feedback that I get from individuals as well as from uh, team leads is that the team as a whole is pretty, pretty darn collaborative and supportive these days. Uh, right. So I would be surprised nowadays to hear that from one of my teammates. Um, so whatever was happening back then, I certainly have not had that kind of turnover uh, in the time that I've been there. Um, and that's not to, not to my credit. I'm just talking yeah, about sure, I, sure. in my observation, I have not seen a giant number of people leaving over frustration. Now, there are always personal reasons why somebody might need to leave. Some people, you know, before we were doing as much remote work as we were, sometimes people needed to move for family reasons. Okay, that happens sometimes for professional reasons. So there's as many reasons as people for, for leaving. Mm -hmm. But I will say that uh, it, I have not been seeing a bunch of people leave due to frustration. And I have been seeing a lot of uh, mutual team respect and support. Good, good. Um, do you have equity and diversity targets so your team represents the general population? And that may be Hasbro or Wizards that has those. Uh, and if so, how are those going? So the the kinds of um, structures that we have for for improving our equity and diversity are typically in the in the hiring process. That is to get enough qualified candidates from enough different backgrounds that we are getting a representative sample of candidates into the into the pipeline. Uh, the you know, once once we have a, a representative set of, of candidates, then it's all about who is the best candidate, who does the job the best. Uh, and that's you know the, the key, since we really have a requirement to deliver the best quality we can, is to always hire the best people we can. And so it, you know, in so much as there are targets, it's in the, it's in the entry point. It's in the um, entry into the hiring process. And then the hiring process is as blind and as skill-based as we can make it. And I'm happy to say that we have seen increasing uh, diversity in the in the uh, in the pool of of designers over the years, uh, and also at the same time, while well, we've maintained our our quality bar, so it, it, it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get the best folks, and you become more representative. That's clearly a hiring process that's working. And do you look at like, well, our percentage of Hispanic is X percent, the country is Y percent. Here's that gap to make up, or how does that work? 
this is stuff that's handled actually through HR. They tell us when we're yeah. meeting guidelines and not. Um, I don't know the exact, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, approach, but I do know that we uh, it, it's all in the who who the interviewees are. Mm -hmm. um, those kinds of considerations don't enter into who the hires are, huh. uh, because the hire always has to be about your ability to do the job. Uh, the main thing to make sure is that the pool of people we're talking to is representative. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a pool of people who are all the same, well, guess what? You're going to hire one of those people who's all the same. But if you've got a pool of people who's from all kinds of life experiences, then the odds of the best person being from a different life experience increases. How about salary parity? Do you also as a corporation look at gender-based pay gaps and, and, and target those over time? All right, we, we, we do uh, kind of a universal pay equity. We make sure that, uh, you know, we re do regular salary surveys to see what other companies are paying for the kinds of jobs we have. And we make sure that we are paying competitively regardless of any other factor. Uh, and so if you do come in or end up in through your, your job experience, having a lower salary than that bar, we'll bring you right up to it. Um, and we don't worry about why. We just mm -hmm. know what our bar is for being uh, competitive on salary. And we make sure that people are there. Thanks. Um, yeah, yeah. So how, who do you report to as executive director of the D&D team? Uh, yeah, uh, so executive producer, just for clarity. Producer. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I report to Dan Rawson, who is the uh, recently hired senior vice president of Dungeons & Dragons. So he leads all of Dungeons & Dragons. So he leads the digital teams, you know, D&D Beyond and uh, the, 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 the digital play space, um, as well as uh, other uh, other support groups for D&D &D and, and also the D&D &D game studio, which is what I lead. And then he reports directly to uh, Cynthia Williams. So it goes from me to Dan to Cynthia. And do you get to meet with the C-level as well or? Yeah, yeah. Um, multiple times a week, typically. Um, you right. know, we have one or two fixed meetings that we have for various topics. And then, of course, when things come up, I get called in. <laughs> and do you feel that you hear enough about what Hasbro and Wizards are planning at the corporate level um, and that they hear what your team is doing and needs? I definitely hear from my end, um, my contacts, my level of contact with uh, Hasbro is, you know, each each level up, I talk to fewer and fewer times, right? Mm -hmm. I talk to Dan every day. I talk to Cynthia a couple times a week. I talk to Hasbro sometimes, you know, once or twice a month. Um, and th now that being said, I do have some sort of peer level contacts at Hasbro mm -hmm. that I talk to from time to time. So I have just sort of personal relationships that uh, help improve communications as well. Uh, Hasbro strategy is pretty clear to me. That gets communicated to me on a, on a frequency that is that keeps me up to speed on what the goals are, strategically speaking. That being said, Hasbro doesn't get down to the, they're not very directive in terms of what they want D&D &D to do. There's, hey, we would like D&D &D to, you know, uh, be this big by this time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the end of it. And then it's up to me to figure out how D&D &D becomes that big by that time. Thanks. That's good to hear. I, I, I was curious whether that had changed uh, in, in the last few years. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, personal relationships. Um, and I've been lucky enough to uh, have personal relationships, both with Chris Cox when he was president of uh, Wizards mm -hmm. before. Now he became CEO of Hasbro. So now I have kind of a legacy personal contact with the CEO, which helps. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been working closely with uh, Cynthia and Dan. So I have, you know, I can't speak to every person in my position in the organization, but I can certainly say that as the head of d and I, I know people and I get listened to, so I certainly don't feel powerless. The, the design team is on one side and the D&D &D Beyond is on the digital side these days. Um, 
what is the difference in how they operate and where do you draw the line between the teams? So we, and I asked this because we've seen recently Twitter accounts, website blogs, discord, it's all becoming D and D beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the, the other one becomes either quiet or sort of a little more forgotten. Um, yeah. how, how is the, the relationship working these days? So we bought D and D beyond as you, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, it was a fairly pricey purchase. Uh, and so we intend to get the value out of that purchase, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, and so D and D beyond is the front door to D and D on the web. Um, and it's going to become even more so. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't see any difference between D&D Beyond and D&D. D&D Beyond is the D&D website. I think more and more you're going to see what had been the D&D website become less and less active um, and, and ultimately one day you know, be largely a redirect over to D&D Beyond because D&D Beyond is the home of D&D. Since that's where everybody goes for their character sheets and their content and stuff anyway, we're just accepting reality and saying, yes, this is where people go. So this is where we should be. Uh, and so just rather than operate two websites, we're going to operate one and it's going to be D&D Beyond. And organizationally, is one above the other in terms of hierarchy? Uh, the one is more of a, um, the, so the, the former D&D site or the current, I guess, whatever, the D&D site that's been around for a long time mm-hmm. uh, is largely a, a, um, a tactic, a tool. It's not really a, a, a team. It's not like there's a D&D website team. There are people who work on the D&D website. D&D Beyond is itself uh, a product, a platform, a service. Uh, and in addition now, it is also the voice of D&D. So we used to have one that was the voice of D&D and one that was where everybody went to play D&D. So now, you know what? It's going to be the same place. And so there isn't an above or below. It's more like we're do- face- putting all our effort here. We're kind of keeping the lights on over here for now, but yeah. ultimately it's all going to be over here. Uh, and I could be wrong in this, but I could imagine some sort of scenario where a new product is being devised and... Um, Someone at D&D Beyond says, well, I'd like the product to work this way so that it can highlight what we offer. And somebody on the D&D studio side is saying, well, actually, you know, we think it should go this way because that's sort of the natural fit for the product. And, and, and so who makes those decisions if something like that comes up? If I'm going to say, well, actually, I'm going to push up my glass. Well, actually, um, uh, the way that it works is that the D&D game studio is the center for the game content. So the D&D game studio produces all of the rules, all of the content that goes with the rules, all of those things that you think of as D&D. And D&D Beyond does a great job uh, turning that into a play service that people use while playing the game. So they've done a great job on their on the character sheet. Um, and uh, that team also does a great job bringing our books to life and hooking them into the character sheet. So in a way, it's uh, similar to how the D&D studio team right now also produces books. We produce what goes in the books and we produce the books themselves. And then over here, we have D&D Beyond, which produces, if you like, a different kind of book, a digital book. Um, but it's still the same content. And so I think more and more, that's what it's going to look like is we're going to have this uh, a content group and maybe a book team and a D&D Beyond team and a digital play space team who express that content in the ways appropriate to their audience. So in that space, the D&D Beyond product managers have a lot of control over how they choose to express that D&D content because they're the ones who know their audience. They're the ones who know that platform. They're the ones who know best what D&D Beyond should look like. Where it comes into actually how the content is designed or what the content says that's largely owned by the studio however you know we're sister teams so we keep in touch mm-hmm. and so communication flows both ways on that yeah. thanks so let's turn to the ogl um the idea that wizards of the coast would change the ogl and see the ogl and it could be changed came as a surprise to the community uh and to partners was that also a surprise to everyone on your team I think it was a surprise to some folks on my team, and uh, partly part of that is my fault. Uh, so, in the interest of of 
serving the team, as I mentioned earlier, I want to you know give them the room to run. Part of that is also screening them from stuff that would be distracting or disrupting. Uh, and long discussions over a legal document is a great way to suck up a designer's time and prevent them from finishing their book. Uh, and so I did as much as I could to both represent the D&D studio at the table in those conversations and shield the creators from being distracted by those conversations. I think I put up too strong a wall though, and we should have had more of the creators at the table. I think it would have beneficially helped the entire conversation around the OGL. Uh, but as a result of that, I am absolutely certain that there are people on my team who are, who were surprised by what they saw. And certainly when they were given the opportunity to weigh in, because we did have people internally review and give feedback on, on the OGL as it was developing, their feedback was pretty clear. And they felt the same way about it that many creators did. Uh, and so this is, again, why I think that more uh, studio involvement earlier would have prevented a lot of this. And that's what's going to be happening going forward. You mentioned on a previous recording that um, this had been in the works for quite some time to to address the OGL and update it in some way. Um, yeah. So were there not sort of at various points people who spoke up and said, wait a minute, this is going to do the following things? Yeah. And uh, part of the way long conversations with lots of stakeholders happen is from time to time, things get raised and they get discussed and they have a, a rising and falling level of impact, depending on how long they're, how long and how vociferously those points are being mm -hmm. raised. Uh, and to my point earlier about the studio not being at the table, you know, in large enough numbers and loud enough, those points didn't land as well as they could have. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not so much that there was nobody saying that it's that that wasn't the, the point of view that was winning. Mm -hmm. um, in the discussions and probably would have been winning had there been more people um, and more um, there and able to speak more loudly about things. Gotcha. On the earlier interview, you also talked about the main concern being big media corporations moving to D&D's space. Can you describe a scenario of what that might look like so folks can understand the worry? What, what might a large yeah. company create that would be a problem? Sure. Um, so there are a lot of new technologies that have, that have come around since the OGL came about. Uh, there have been apps, um, there have been video games, um, there has been virtual reality spaces. Uh, so, you know, let's say that uh, somebody wanted to create uh, a version of D&D where you would put on a virtual reality headset and you would play through your dungeon that way. Um, and, they, and the way that game interacted was it was, say, mostly user-generated content. Um, and let's say that their user-generated content controls were a bit lax. Um, you know, imagine, uh, you know, kind of a Wild West, Minecraft, Roblox space, but with worse uh, content controls. Say, uh, let's, I'd rather not. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, what is, I'm trying to remember that there's a, there's a great example of this. I'll think of the name of it later on. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, there are online spaces out there where the internet mm -hmm. is doing what it does quite graphically. Uh, and imagine a virtual reality space where that happened. And that was people's idea of D&D. And if that's what people associated with D&D, people would very quickly go, oh, you play D&D? Isn't that that video porn game? No, no, <laughs> God, no. I'm just mm -hmm. playing regular D&D, mm -hmm. not that VR, whatever the hell thing. Um, and while that's not something that's emerged, that's not something I've observed, that's not a thing that I know is a problem today, we were looking ahead. What mm -hmm. could emerge? What are we currently unable to prevent or influence or steer clear of? And that was one of the things. Um, okay. Our position now is that the community is our strongest weapon against that, that this community, as has been demonstrated yet again in this very controversy, is a very strong community when united. And um, we think that uh, 
content that would be harmful to D&D is something this community would recognize, would stand up to, would make a big noise about. And then what we would do is we would join that effort rather than trying to um, take it all on ourselves. So that's the current, that's our current viewpoint. And that's why we've just gone all open with the rule set because you know what, we don't need to do this with some kind of legal document. We'll, uh, we'll do this through people power. Thanks. And so royalties, which were in, in the initial draft, seem to, if I understand it correctly, seem to have been designed as a sort of a, a growth cap with the idea that if you were a large company, you would simply say, well, then I'm not going to participate. Is, was that kind of the idea to make it just at this point, it's unattractive? It was more the second half than the first one. So a growth cap suggests that we don't want people getting more than a certain level. What we were actually looking for is we didn't want uh, companies that were already way above that level coming in. Um, we didn't want, you know, people who already had deep pockets rolling in and saying, well, I want to redefine D&D since they can't stop me from doing that. Uh, and uh, the, the, and this is where, this is where we, you know, by drips and drips got to the wrong position is we thought, well, what would prevent a big player from coming in? Well, a royalty rate, because they, nobody, no big player is going to be willing to put up with that. They would rather talk to us directly. Great. Then at least we're at the table. Okay. Well, if we've got a royalty, well, we don't want to hurt the creator community. What's a level at which it, we basically wouldn't affect any creators. I don't know this. And so, and we kept arguing for higher and higher ceilings on that to give more and more room for creators to not be affected by it, forgetting that even having a royalty thing in there at all affects creators, even if only psychologically in a very destructive way. Uh, and then also when you talk about having that kind of a structure, you talk about how do I know when someone's getting close? Oh, maybe we have them report their revenue to us so we know when somebody's getting close so we can reach out to them when they're getting close. Yeah, that sounds reasonable from a business licensing perspective, uh -huh. but not from an open gaming creator perspective. That sounds horrible. Like all of a sudden you're the IRS to me now. <laughs> so it, mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things where if you look at where we landed, it's obvious that it's stupid, um, mm -hmm. but each decision by itself seems smart. Um, and it's sort of like boiling the frog. And so this is what the feedback process was meant to catch. And what ended up happening was it happened a lot faster and a lot louder. Still, it, in a way, in a terrible way, it worked. Mm -hmm. I like where we landed. I love where we landed. I do not like it all how we got here. So are royalties now dead? Or might we see in the future some other way that you try to focus this on very large media companies? Uh, right now, we're looking at protecting D&D through the already existing copyrights and trademarks we have and the things that are not in the Creative Commons, which is quite a lot of stuff. There's a mm -hmm. whole ton of stuff in what we publish that's not in Creative Commons. And so where we where we look now is to the community for things that are in the Creative Commons to prevent large actors from making a mess of things that way. And then from our own trademark and copyright perspective, we should be able to protect the rest of it. And so that combination of what we can protect based on copyright and trademark and what the community can protect in the open space, we think gives us enough protection at this point, which is why Creative Commons was such... Uh, a great and easy solution for us. When one of the folks on the legal team suggested it, we all jumped on it right away because we realized, you know what? The open gaming license that's been around for 20 years kind of didn't give us any protection. We haven't got hurt by it so far. Why not just put it all in Creative Commons and, and put this to bed and, and we'll rely on the protections we have in copyright trademark in the community. Thanks. Another concern was hateful content. And the community has had trouble with that because we've seen probably the biggest examples that, that get attention are Wizards of the Coast examples of something that falls short of desirable standards. And we've seen some companies delve into NFTs for sure. Uh, you know, I was in an article, a news piece speaking against them. I don't like them at all. Uh, but Hasbro has delved into NFTs. And so, you know, and then we look at the incredible number of OGL products that have been created, very few problems overall. 
So what what are what is the community failing to understand on what wizards wanted to do with with content protection with content standards? So there's a couple of things. One is because we know very well that there is content out there that can be quite hateful. It can be applied to D and D, and you know, it, as you point out, the, the community has been quite loud at telling us when uh, we've gone the wrong way and we've corrected it. And so that's you know that we know that we can count on the community for that. Uh, the thing that we didn't have is any ability to prevent a third party from using the OGL to produce hateful content and thereby reach the much larger larger audience that's out there now than there was in 2000, the much more diverse audience out there than there was in 2000. So the opportunity for harm is much greater, and which which is what our concern was. That being said, uh, we realized that the combination of our, as I was mentioning with the with the big media companies, the same answer applies here. The combination of community plus our own copyright and trademark uh, protections is enough, we think, to take care of hateful content. You know, on, you know, on further review, looking at it, that's much better than uh, the harm that was going to be done to the creator community. So it's one of those things where you look at the cost benefit. What are we going to gain? What are we going to lose? Well, we gain the legal ability to get to, to stop hateful content by third party creators, but we would lose basically our whole creator community. That is not worth it. That is a terrible deal. We want the creator community. So let's do the thing that keeps them and we'll count on the combination of trademark copyright and the community to handle the rest of it. Uh, about the, in the NFT thing, um, I was talking with, um, I think it might've been Ginny earlier about uh, how NFTs per se are not the concern. It's how people use them. It's the scams. The NFT space is so full of scams. It is, you know, it's it NFT has become a shorthand for scam, honestly, because it's been used that way so much. Uh, and that's the kind of thing we didn't want people to, on the back of some new technology like NFTs, to roll into our community and start conducting scams on people. Uh, so we wanted some ability to stop that. And once again, this is something that the community can help us with because people recognize these things and speak out against them uh, and can organize against them. In, in the past, Wizards has held back from providing content standards because it can be a sort of legal responsibility, right? So like the Adventures League initially tried to create a policy and then ended up having no policy, but requires conventions to have a policy. Is that an approach that will change or is this kind of what Wizards will do is more tell people how to create the policy that should be there because you can't actually put the policy because then you're responsible for the policy? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So we are gonna uh, we we have been working on a content policy, and we intend to publish one for public comment, and then hold ourselves to it. Okay. Uh, you know, this is not you know the a set of standards that we can or necessarily should hold anybody else to, but we will certainly hold ourselves to. And so people deserve to know what our standards are, and so then we will act to hold ourselves to those standards. And that way, also they know as a you know you know as a creator, oh hey, if I go against this, I can expect wizards to not be happy about it. Um, and so in addition to any community trouble I might have, I might also have wizards you know, looking a side eye at me, which is fine. You know, even that doesn't have any, necessarily any legal ramification, but we are a member of the community too, and a reasonably loud member of the community. So if we tend to say something that might not be what you would want as a third party creator. So yes, uh, we are working on a content policy um, and we will be publishing it for public comment because that's a responsible thing to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I've created the, the code of conduct for RPG project, which is available on drive through and, and, and certainly believe in it. And I know a lot of people I work yeah. with do as well. So I'm glad to see that coming. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Got to have standards. I want to ask you about share alike. A lot of the versions that we saw of the OGL drafts did, did not seem to support share alike and even creative commons, uh, you know, does not have a share alike attribution. Is that mm -hmm. something that's deliberate as wizards, 
seeing share alike as a problem? You know, it's, um, it's a, it's, we don't see it as a problem. I'll just say straight up other than that we want to support creators and some creators would like the ability to use uh, the SRD content to build something that they own, that they mm -hmm. don't have to share alike. And if we write it in there that it's share alike, now they have to share alike. And maybe they don't want to. Maybe they want to create their own world and, and own it and not share it. And we would like creators to feel like they're building value in their own IP. And so to, so it, it's a tough one. Like you go either way. If you write share alike in, now you're saying, hey, you can't really ever own your own stuff because you have to share it with everybody. And so we've chosen a road of uh, going Creative Commons because that gives creators their choice as to whether, because they can, they're always allowed to say this is share alike. Any creator can publish a book and say right in there, this is share alike content, but you can do that as a creator, but at least we're not forcing that to be the case. You, you get your choice. If you just use Creative Commons, great. You can own your own content as well. I, I follow what you're saying. I, I think there's a slight difference legally um, in, in, in how it works. I, if, if my understanding, which may not be correct, <laughs> not a lawyer, um, but, yeah, I, me but either, I believe so. <laughs> you would have to publish uh, something into the Creative Commons separately to then also have your work be Creative Commons. And one of the nice things about the OGL is it has a provision that says uh, the following thing is product identity, the rest is open. So you can kind of choose to, to what, what you're sharing or not sharing. Um, but but mm -hmm. I, I hear you. And bottom line, I think, is you're saying that this is not a, a deliberate attempt to remove share alike. And, yeah, right? yeah we're, we're trying to split the difference yeah. here. We want creators to feel like they don't have to share alike if they don't want to. Um, and given the level of um, trust damage that we've you know done here we didn't want anyone to have to take our word for anything we're just here you go take creative commons word for it this is the license we'll use and i don't know if this question is is useful at all and so feel free to, feel free to answer with the you know it's complicated but but i think folks do sometimes want to understand the difference between wizards and hasbro and 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 the design team and wizards um you know the idea of revising the ogl and the work to revise it you know, at some point that really began in earnest. And was that something that was being done at the Hasbro executive level, at the Wizards executive level, at the design team level? Like, where was that happening? So it was, there were multiple stakeholders, people from various parts of the organization, um, you know, folks from from legal, from business development, from studio, from, from all around the organization. So it wasn't like there was one particular group that owned it or drove it. Uh, it, the, it was an ongoing effort when I arrived um, and, uh, Every day, it felt like it was getting more urgent because the things that we wanted to address with it were all based on audience size, and the audience kept growing. So the bigger the audience, the bigger the risk that mm -hmm. some big actor will come in, or the bigger the risk that some hateful content will come out and hurt everybody, or the bigger the risk that somebody will come in with some new technology-based scam, or whatever it is. All of the risks we were worried about, just we just kept our eyes kept getting bigger every day. We're like, someday somebody's going to do one of these things. We have to do something. And so this urgency rose um, until... Uh, action was taken. So it wasn't like there was a moment where somebody said, this needs to happen and it needs to happen by this date. It was kind of a, a, a rising sense of urgency until yeah. action was taken. So something that I've, I've, I've been lucky to speak to a lot of fantastic Wizards employees, D&D &D employees over the years, and something that I hear, they may not say it always, you know, but, but something that I hear enough or it's, it's, it's indicated in the kind of conversations we have is a sort of feeling that if you speak up, it can come at personal cost. Mm. Um, and that it is sort of a, a fundamental thing, and it existed in the TSR days, and it existed in the Wizards days, that you, know, you are, are paying a personal cost if you want to speak up against something that management is doing. And mm. is that something that Wizards is willing to change? Do you, do you agree that it is a thing that has existed in the past? 
Yeah, that's a sign, I think, of immature management. Uh, uh, immature managers lead from ego. Um, and, e you know, when you lead from ego, you get personally offended when somebody says something against you and that will lead you to retaliate. Um, mm -hmm. That's not the kind of leaders we have today. Um, I'm recent, so I can't speak to yeah. literally anything that happened before 2020. Um, <laughs> or sorry, before 2021. God, I've only been here two years. Um, and uh, that is not how I lead. Um, okay. The mantra that I always tell people is I need good information, not good news. Um, so if you have bad news, the sooner you tell me, the happier I'll be. So please disagree with me. Please talk to me. Let's have this conversation. Um, and because I come from a place of listening um, and humility and collaboration, it's easier for people to say those things to me. That being said, I'm in a position of authority. That has a cooling effect. That ha makes it hard for people to speak. It takes a while for people to understand that it's actually okay to disagree with me and tell me these things. Uh, and so every week, every month that I'm here, people get more and more of that impression. Uh, and I think that there's there are echoes of past leadership that are leading to some of the fears you're describing. Uh, I know that from personal experience with, um, with Dan and myself and with Cynthia, that's not how any of us operate. Uh, we are all interested in a vigorous debate. We really want to hear the information. That doesn't mean we're always going to agree. I mean, if you mm -hmm. if you come yeah. to me with a disagreement and you know we lay out our cases and I still disagree with you, that can still happen. That doesn't mean I didn't listen. Mm -hmm. um, but I will absolutely listen and I will value the information and I will make sure that we each understand each other because that's what communication's for. Thanks. So a uh, short version is that's not how we operate today, but I can certainly believe echoes of that in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so. so with with the 1.1 version, one of the questions that often comes up, did anybody sign the first version at 1.1? So 1.1 was always meant to be an online click-through process. There was never going to be a signature for 1.1. Uh, that being said, um, it was distributed along with an NDA, and you have to sign the NDA. Um, and my understanding, I wasn't personally in these communication loops. My understanding is at, at the same time with some of these creators, there were conversations about other arrangements that those creators might make, direct licenses, separate from um, the OGL. And those would, of course, have signatures because they're direct licenses and you sign licenses. Uh, so all of that being said, the impression someone could get that I have to sign the 1.1 is absolutely a believable impression for someone to get out of all that. But I will say that the design of 1.1 was always going to be an online click-through process, no signature process. Thanks. So then groups like Cobalt Press, which you mentioned in an early recording, um, they should have provided good feedback because they've been around for a really long time. Was that mm -hmm. feedback not collected properly or listened to? Like, how did what these companies were saying not register to the point where they felt they had to go out into the public and talk about it? I think it was, uh, I think that failing is on us in terms of not communicating to them how much we were listening. Uh, because if they, give, you know, so let's say that um, you give me something to review and I give you my feedback and then I don't hear anything from you other than thanks for the feedback. How do I know you've done anything? How do I know you've even listened? Maybe I'm afraid you're not listening. Maybe I think you're not going to change a thing. And the thing I told you not to do, you're still going to do. I might feel that I need to go tell somebody else to make sure you don't do that thing I told you we shouldn't do. In that case, the failing is on you for not telling me, hey, thank you for the feedback. And we're making the following changes based on the feedback. Here's what's coming next, which we did not do. Um, yeah. Even though we were taking the feedback and we were making changes, we hadn't landed on what those changes would be yet. So we didn't really have anything material to communicate back yet. <clears throat> this is becoming clearer and clearer to me as I look further and further into this process. Yeah. But um, I think that's a big part of it was that, you know, the fact that we were taking feedback 
wasn't clear to them. It was obviously not clear to them or why would they have bothered to go outside, yeah. right? If you feel like you're being listened to, you wouldn't need to do that. Um, one point to the the first version that that we saw publicly was was making an, a number of improvements, but it was still trying to deauthorize the open gaming license. And yeah. was that preventing to try to prevent a company from using the original OGL to compete on a large scale? Is that sort of the primary reason for that? I mean, if you're going to write a new version of the OGL to protect yourself from the vulnerabilities of the old OGL, you kind of have to take the old OGL off the table, right? Otherwise you're not protecting yourself at all. Um, you know, if I'm putting on a suit of armor, but there's no back to it, uh, why did I put it on? I better keep mm -hmm. my front to you, I guess, at all times. Um, so the, that was, that was, it's, that's just the mechanics of it. If you are going to change the OGL, then you kind of have to deauthorize the old one or there's no point in changing it. And was that idea, um, mainly because of worries that, well, was it, solely the worry that something would come from outside the hobby as you've described or was it also the idea that a competitor can rise from inside the rbg hobby yeah we weren't worried about that one actually we love the creator community that's great um the thing is there's only so many um there's so only so many appetites within the hobby that we can personally satisfy i only have so big a team i can only yeah. make so many books a year there's stuff that people need that i'm just not going to it's not going to make it high enough on our priority list to deliver so somebody else can do that that's great that's, you know, we need that vibrant creator community to serve the broad needs of the, of the player community. So there's in every way, the creators are super valuable to us, which is why it was so, it was such an easy call for us to say, whoa, hang on, we're destroying the very thing we need, drop it, let's go another way. Cause it's just, that's, that's super valuable to us. So it was never about reducing the activity in the creator community or, or putting a ceiling on it or a cap or what have you. What we did want to do is we wanted to make sure that we were in touch with the most successful creators because we wanted to have closer relationships with them. You know, for people who are really reaching big audiences and really succeeding, we wanted to talk to them and say, hey, what about, you know, have you considered maybe licensing some of our content and going even bigger with it? Because you're clearly good at this, right? So we wanted to have sort of a continuum of creators that would include closer relationships with us. And so that's where some of that um, tiering structure got in there as well was to identify those who were doing best in the space so we could be closer with them. And the way it was executed was very clearly going to be an attenuating destructive structure, which we did not want. So we took it away. Wizards has a reputation for being tough in negotiations, whether it's negotiating with partners on a book or a VTT platform or a character builder. Do you think that has historically been Wizards of Coast's interest? I think that um, I, I will say that our team is generally hired to be as good as they can be at what their specialties are. They hired me to come in and, and uh, be a leader for a creative team. And that's what I'm doing to the best of my ability. You know, we have executives who have their mandate and they do the best they can. We got marketing folks who are supposed to be good at marketing. So the folks who negotiate our contracts and licenses, I would expect them to be good at that too. We're all supposed to be good at our jobs. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that the negotiations in the past have been tough. I think the important thing here that's become clear at an organizational strategic level is that the the requirement to do a good job negotiating a deal should not supersede the requirement that we have a vibrant and uh, powerful creator community. And so that's so it's more about competing priorities than about should people be able to negotiate for good deals. Yeah. I mean, that's what negotiations are for. So Wizards asked for a survey after 1.2, and I greatly appreciate that because it, it really demonstrated that we were being listened to and it was made super clear when then all of the, the plug was pulled on the changes, no deauthorizing the, the OGL, SRD 5.1 placed in Creative Commons. 
Um, how was it that that really came to happen that, that someone said, let's go all the way to this place? So, we, so when, I mean, it happened more or less as I wrote it. I mean, everything that I, it's got my name on it, I wrote and I meant. Mm -hmm. So all those, mm -hmm. all those letters came out of my keyboard. Uh, and uh, the, it was, you know, we were watching the survey results come in and we could see what people were saying and we could see where this survey feedback was coming from and the range of people is coming from people who are current creators, people who are up and coming creators, people who are not yet creators, but really used a lot of third party content. So there was quite a range of, of people. I mean, 15,000 responses. That's, yeah. that's a bunch of people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the intent was always to run it the way we do our, our playtest uh, cycles for our, our game content, which is collect a bunch of feedback analyze it, process it, you know, sort it because you can't read 15,000 entries or you'll be there all week just reading it. Um, and so, but we do have a method for getting that information digestible. Um, and it became super clear where it was going to the point where I said, it's obvious where this is going, right? And we already know at this point, we had already discussed, look, we already thought about Creative Commons in 1.2 what about just, let's just go all Creative Commons. And so we were already talking about that as the survey feedback was coming in. And when we saw the survey feedback also supporting Creative Commons, said, look, it's not just us, not just us, the community likes this too. I don't know why we're waiting. Like, why do we need to wait another 10 days to do any, let's just do it now. Because um, it's super obvious, let's, you know, let's not drag this out. So yeah, so there were a few of us who were pushing for urgency on that one because it was it was stupid obvious. I'm, I'm very glad it happened. Uh, I mean, you, you say that, but I've, I've worked with a lot of companies over the years that have not made those kinds of moves and when when they could have. So I, I'm appreciative of that. I know a lot of people are. Um, so those are, you know, there were so many goals that had originally existed around royalties and that must have, you know, involved some sort of planning and calculations. You know, all of this fell by the wayside protection from the large companies. Um, so are all those goals just shelved until later? Like is Wizards willing to say we're not going to deauthorize 1.0a? Uh, so our strategy is um, has has not been set aside. We still have those concerns about um, outside mm -hmm. actors and new technologies and scams and uh, hateful content. We've just changed what our response to that will be. So you know our first approach was, hey, if we just had the legal right to get in the way, let's do that. Okay, we can't do that. What was our what was Plan B? And Plan B is a combination of copyright trademark and the community. So we still yeah. those are the things that are still important to us. We've just changed our strategy for handling it. Um, so those are. And that's an appropriate yeah. thing because the cost of doing the legal strategy was too high. We would have lost our creators. Nope, not an acceptable cost. What's the next one? Let's keep our creators, keep them strong. And in fact, rely on them to help us along with the community, along with our copyright and trademark to do these things. Uh, and so in terms of deauthorizing 108, um, I, we don't have any plans to go anywhere near the OGL right now. Uh, that was the whole point of going to Creative Commons is to just make it all moot. Mm -hmm. Use whatever you want. It's fine. Um, that's not, uh, it's not a, um, it's not, anything important to the company at this point. And that was the beauty of doing something that's in the way, as the way I put it is mechanically irreversible. <laughs> We've put it in the creative commons. It's done. You don't have to trust us. We don't have to revisit this, the end basically. Um, and so, you know, will we, uh, will we deauthorize one away? I don't know why it would help us to do so. It's just all in creative commons. If you don't like us deauthorizing one away, you'll just go use creative commons. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking to that of, of, you know, what comes next with it, you know, the end, um, so 5.1 was released in, I think, 2016, about seven years ago. This is the SRD version, um, but it has not been updated since then, right? So one of the worries has been, well, it's really wonderful that 5.1 is in the Creative Commons and you're saying the word updates, but will you really be updating the SRD? Will we see it 
be updated for things like the artifice or will we see it be updated for one D&D? And we're definitely going to update, be updating the SRD. Uh, our commitment is that the SRD will continue to be compatible with the rules updates that are coming. Now, whether that's because we're going to bring rules in, um, you know, actual like just wholesale bring text in from the new rules, or whether we use some kind of bridging language. The example I always give is, well, it's species over here and race over here. So any place you see species, you should understand understand that to mean race. So if I'm playing a you know a an OGL based or five one SRD based. Uh, piece of content over here, and I've also bought the the rules updates. I won't be confused. They'll work together still, and so that's that's our promise: is that the the SRD will be updated to remain compatible with the new rules update. So that's for sure. Whether it's five two, five three, whatever we call it. Um, so you know the new rules updates are still fifth edition. It's just going to be improvements to fifth edition the way we see will, it. Will you also add the three five SRD to it? We're doing. We're looking at it. Um, I think the answer is yes, with a small asterisk, and that asterisk is we need to do our homework because sure. we haven't looked closely at the at the three five SRD in some time. And speaking to the point now of our strategy being that blend of of uh, community and uh, trademark and copyright, we need to make sure that we don't give up some of that copyright or trademark protection by releasing the wrong thing into Creative Commons. So. Subject to us doing our homework and reading through the SRD and making sure we, there isn't something in there that shouldn't be in there, yes. Um, my my personal goal is as much as possible, I want to just move it into Creative Commons as is. I don't want to have to edit it, but I also got to be responsible. So we'll take a look. But yes, that's the goal. Thanks. I want to ask a few questions about virtual tabletops and, and media. Um, will Wizards of the Coast continue to work with Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds as partners for 1D&D? Are those companies seen as partners or as competitors? They are important to the RPG hobby, which is important to us. So um, they are important to us. We we like working with them. We like what they mean to players, um, the ways that they let players continue to play. Uh, look, we had huge growth during the pandemic, largely thanks to them and others. Uh, so the VTT community out there is great. Uh, we're, we're totally happy about it. Are we also making, you know, digital virtual play spaces? Yeah, we are. Um, and my preference is to give people more choice, not less. Mm -hmm. So it's to me, it's not about making it harder for somebody else to do business. For me, it's more about how good can my thing be so that you can choose. Um, you decide which thing you want to use. And, and does what you want also represent what Wizards is planning? <laughs> oh, what I mean is what you, the player, wants. Uh, so, you know, our, our goal is to make the best stuff. And if, you know, as a business, the way we succeed is if we do make the best stuff, because then we sell the most stuff, right? right. And so... It's it's kind of a a, um, a a virtuous competition, I suppose, rather than you know trying to you right. know kneecap the other guy. But, I'm just going to try so to run faster. There isn't any plan to say, oh, one D and D is different enough that the license doesn't apply. And sorry, Roll Twenty, you can't carry our products. Yeah, the the one D and D is an is an update to fifth edition, and we're going to keep the the um, the SRD. Uh, compatible with it, and so all the stuff that Roll Twenty does that's based on that SRD is over there, and they also have. You know, license to to sell our content, and the, you know the, that license still applies. Uh, what it will look like as the as the road continues, you know, that sure. remains to be seen. Sure. I mean, with the I mean, DMs Guild and Roll Twenty are now the same company. That wasn't true a year ago. I don't know. Things change, so we'll have mm -hmm. to see what goes on. <laughs> How about the idea of third party content inside of D and D Beyond or the virtual tabletop? Is that a possibility? I'm sorry. What was that? Uh, is it possible that third-party content would be allowed inside of D&D Beyond, inside of the virtual tabletop? Yeah, yeah, I think that's possible. Yeah, I think it's possible. The thing about D&D um, Beyond is it takes a fair amount of work to bring a piece of content into D&D Beyond and enable it in, in the character builder and everything. So there's kind of a lot of work involved in that. It's not as simple as like posting a PDF. 
Um, and so we have to be very thoughtful about every piece of content that we make live on D&D Beyond. And so while the answer is, you know, the answer is sure, and it's got to be a pretty important piece of third-party content that a bunch of the audience wants because it's going to be a co- an opportunity cost for us to do that versus something else that we might be doing with the limited number of people we've got. So the answer is not no strategically. The answer is we got to prioritize and, and and choose the right stuff to to promote there. But I certainly could see a day when we put some third-party third stuff up on, um, uh, up on D&D Beyond. I mean, we've done, you know, um, partner stuff like the the uh, critical role books that we did together, those are up on D&D Beyond. Um, you know, the Acquisitions Incorporated book that we did with Benny Arcade, that's up on D&D Beyond. So that kind of stuff is going to continue to show up there. Um, but I think it'll probably be, you know, in priority order. So I'm super excited for the movie. Have you, is, is the staff getting to see it soon, early, something like that? Uh, some of us have seen some things. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> so um, I will say I am I am highly encouraged by what Excellent. I have seen. So yeah. you, you've got the movie, there's a TV show in the works, um, but we also hear that Hasbro is selling off E1 and video game investments are being curtailed. And, and what worries me about that is if d is supposed to become a $1 billion brand, but we're taking a lot of the media and a lot of video games off the table, does that put too much emphasis on the virtual tabletop as supposed to be something that creates an unprecedented volume of revenue that it can't really do? So the, uh, the the stated you know strategy for Hasbro is to focus on big brands, right? And D and D is one of those big brands. And so whatever else Hasbro may be doing to focus on those big brands is not going to de-invest in in my understanding from D and D. So it's not that we're going to do less stuff for D and D. It's that we're going to focus on the things that are important. So the biggest brands in Hasbro will get the biggest focus, in my expectation. So I don't think it it hurts um, D and D's ability to go as wide as we can to as many people who want stuff. <laughs> I want to close with a few 1D&D uh, questions. Has the OGL impacted the strategy behind 1D&D? Uh, I would say no. No, no, it hasn't. I mean, we always intended um, 1D&D to be an evolution of 5th edition, to be an update to 5th edition. We always intended it to be accessible to creators in the community. So uh, I think um, maybe the main thing is the public commitment to that. I think privately that was where we felt it would go. And now we're saying it publicly, which, you know, makes, helps it come true. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah. when you say something publicly, it becomes more true. So I think it's maybe helped in that way. Um, I don't think it's made us feel differently about the right direction. Um, it's maybe helped more in us expressing it publicly in conversations like this. And do you think one D and D can really be the final edition of D and I would like for D and D to be a living game. Um, and to me, a living game is one where, people's experience of it can be continuous across generations, but it can also evolve with the player base. So if I played D&D 20 years ago and I play D&D today, I should, it should feel like at some level it's the same game, but also it should be a different game than it was 20 years ago. And 20 years from now, it should be a different game than it is today, but it should also be familiar to people who play it today. And so it, it, that's what I mean by a living game. It's still the same game in that you're not lost. You don't know. You don't wonder where it's gone. Where's my game gone? And at the same time, it is the game of its generation. So fifth edition, for example, allows for a lot more, in my view, a lot more theater to the mind. It's much more friendly to role play. It doesn't require as much sort of crunchy, numbery stuff. And uh, the bounded accuracy, for example, keeps it so that people don't feel like they have to choose this particular set of stuff to optimize. Otherwise, they're useless. Um, it, 
there are a lot of things that allow people to be more creative at the table without being penalized mathematically. Um, and I think that leads to some of these better expressions like we've seen in some of the actual plays and and really how the game plays at the table today. I would love to see that continue. I would love to see it get closer and closer to a structured improv space where people can really just get into the the characters and the adventures and the story in a satisfying way um, with enough structure to make it feel real. Like you need some structure for it to feel real. But yeah, so I, that was a bunch of words. I hope some of that makes oh, sense. That's great. Um, <laughs> so the one D play test seems to be a little behind schedule and that there's a lot that we've been said we might see, but 2024 is looming. Uh, is there any possibility that the timeline might move back or that you might consider something like a lighter version that's an anniversary edition, but the real one D&D comes out further down the road? Or... We're still committed to our timeline. Uh, we're, we're, you know, this is, a, this is important to do. Um, it's our number one priority. Uh, I will say that the playtest timeline has been a bit in, impacted by the OGL sure. uh, situation. It seems like people are interested in getting back to the game now. That The smoke is a little bit clearing on that. So we're going to get back to the playtest here real soon. Um, and we'll get back on track and, and continue down the road. Um, and everybody will see what, what's coming up because you'll see it in the playtests. So the, speaking of the playtest, the videos describing the playtest feedback are sort of resoundingly positive. Um, more positive than the discourse, not online, because online is all over the place, but amongst, say, level-headed reviewers, right? Mm -hmm. um, would Wizards consider using an outside firm to help with survey design and, and kind of better ways of measuring what people like and don't like and, and how to get it questions? I mean, the we do have a pretty professional research team that gathers this information. And I think that um, there's always a difference between reviewers and the audience like if you look at rotten tomatoes you know you know, or mm -hmm. you know any any situation where you're looking at the difference between professional reviewers and the audience there's going to be a gap there the audience will think one thing and the reviewers will think another thing so the the fact of that gap existing doesn't say to me that you have bad research what it means is you need to understand what your research is actually telling you um, and so if the research is telling me that the player base likes these concepts likes these mechanics in the limited window in which they've been able to play with them at their tables that's useful information, that's valuable information. And also these mechanics need to stand the test of time. They need to be good in the long haul. They need to continue to make the game better each time. And that may be different than what you're getting from the immediate um, playtest feedback. So I think, and, and, and we have of course, professional designers on our own teams um, who also give us pretty robust feedback. Uh, we have internal playtest teams and um, that feedback is probably closer to what you might get from a professional reviewer because we're pretty vigorous in our assessments of each other's work. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope so. It, it feels uh, to many of us like the play tests are um, a little more of a hot, cold measure than they are actually, do you like this? If, if that makes sense, right? The difference between saying, um, yeah, that's not bad or saying what I really want is. Right. Or what I, and, and that's, that's a probably bad example because in, in play testing, you don't really ask, what do you want? But, but, but where you get to understand uh, the, how a different thing registers with someone, right? And we saw that in D&D &D Next, that D&D &D Next would break down uh, pieces and give it to us, and we'd see wildly different experiments, and we'd get to really think through them. And then the team could take all of that and say, well, this is what really works for skills, right? We tried six ways to do skills, and this mm -hmm. is the one that really works. Yeah, well, and I think um, in the difference between D&D &D Next and 1D&D and &D &D is the timeline. Um, I think because we have sort of a defined timeline for mm -hmm. this one, there's, you know, it's, it's the old iron triangle, right? Good, fast, cheap, pick any two. 
right? Yeah. Uh, and we've got our defined time frame. So that means there's, you know, we, we were limited in the other dimensions. Uh, so, you know, there's, there is going to be a difference between how this is done and how, um, and how the original play tests were done for, uh, for D&D Next. It's a good thought, though. Um, I, uh, I will bring these thoughts back to my team. Thanks. Um, so this has been painful for us this last month. I know it's been painful for you and, and the team. Uh, but we learn sometimes through these kinds of mistakes and situations. What has Wizards learned from this experience? And, and how, how would you sum that up? And, and how Wizards will, will change approach in the future to prevent this from happening again? Um, I think the game team has gained uh, some more of a voice in the overall conversation about D&D as a brand. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of trust has been built among leadership. So um, I, we are more, our voice is more trusted at the executive levels perhaps than maybe it was before. Not to say that it was mistrusted, but I think it's pretty firmly trusted now, especially since you know we saw things turn around pretty quickly once the game team's voice was more represented in the process. Uh, and so that, I think that'll help us going forward. I think the people who are closest to the players in the community, which is those of us who make the game, um, you know, getting that that closer relationship with the um, with decision makers matters. I think also, honestly, uh, getting Dan Ross in, and, and and I don't mean like he's a great guy; he is. But also, more importantly, having a senior vice president um, this that's a new role. We have not had somebody with that kind of executive authority representing Dungeons and Dragons all up before, um, and that is we're being treated like a real grown up brand now. Um, and so that matters, you know, in the, in sort of the political landscape of how big companies work, it matters to have a senior executive who represents your brand. Um, and we have that now and he, he plays regularly. He's in at least two regular games and, you know, he's, he, he geeks out on all the new products we show him and, you know, he, he loves it. So it's great that he's an effective executive and also loves the game. That's heartening as well. So I think there's a number of things that have happened recently, um, that, that encouraged me. I would also say that the addition of Cynthia Williams as president at Wizards um, is, it has been great. She is one of the most empathetic, um, data-oriented, um, operationally effective people, like the combination of expertise and willingness to take new information in and change direction. Man, that that level of competence and humility blended in, in, in a senior executive is super rare. I've worked with a lot of senior executives and all too often, that ego piece gets in the way. Um, sure. And uh, that's not what I get from Cynthia at all. And I think that, that that means the world to, to how we can do things in the future. All right, so to close out, I wanna provide you with three requests. You ready? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have a captive it's audience, so I can make the most of it. <laughs> all right, I want Wizards of the Coast to subsidize virtual weekend games in Spanish. The virtual weekends are awesome. Okay. The cost okay. of Spanish languages, of Spanish language games is really high but I think growing that community would be really, really good. Yeah. Uh, second request, I'd love to see the basic rules and the SRD translated to the main play languages for D&D. Uh, what if I told you we were going to put the SRD into French, Italian, German, and Spanish? Great news. Thank you. Uh, the last request... Ah, I said, what if? I didn't promise it. Oh, no, no. You said you did. It's, it's here. It's a... I'll change the audio later to say that. No. Um, thank you. For considering yeah. it and or doing it. Yeah. Um, last one is I'd love to see the D&D team members at convention tables playing games with regular people. It's something that D&D team members did uh, yeah. back, especially during fourth edition, sometimes during fifth edition. And every time it happens, 
the smile on people's face is just, you know, they can be sitting five tables away, but they're mm. so happy to see that happen. And so I'd like to request mm. that again. It's, uh, you know, it's been tough to do conventions since 2020 for various reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, we are we are taking another look at convention participation. <laughs> I will say that right now because circumstances are changing. Yeah. Uh, anything else you wish to share before we close? Any questions you wish I'd asked or questions you have for the community? Uh, questions I have for the community. I think um, I, uh, I would like to know... Um, Actually, no, I think you told me that. I was going to say, what would you do in my position? But I think you've, you've given me a pretty good view of that. Uh, I think the main thing I want people to take away is that, you know, we at Wizards, not just in D&D, but across the Wizards organization, D&D is a really common thread. A lot, a lot of people in this organization play the game and love the game. Um, and uh, this past period has been rough on us as players, not just as employees, but also as, as players. And uh, we are super grateful for I honestly I was telling somebody today the nature of the D&D community even when everybody is angry at you is so much better than the nature of so many other communities out there like yeah. you know I think it's the fundamental cooperative nature of D&D as a play experience people who love this game you know we will fight for what's right but we will also not split the party um and uh that is I'm grateful for that every day uh because it's we can we can have this kind of a conversation. We can have this kind of a situation. And afterwards, we can still all agree that we love the game. I, well, I agree with you. I also think that, though, that it is, it's always precarious, right? Like, it, it requires yeah. uh, ongoing work by everybody in the community to keep it healthy because it is yeah. really easy for it to derail and become terrible. And, and there's, yeah. there are algorithms and all kinds of things that make it so it's easy to be uh, a, a terrible community and it takes a lot of work to make it that way. But we, we are in an area that's full of volunteers and community and, and, and good people. Yeah. It goes back to what it means to be a DM writer, to be a good player. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely but, a know, free. Along the lines of your question, uh, I, I would grow things internationally uh, because I think that's huge growth potential. Uh, and I think that, you know, restoring the faith as, as you're doing is, is super important. But that includes really making very clear statements around what D and D is and isn't doing, and and, and I think yeah. you know over the past, Wizards has at times been um, very competitive in ways that were that were difficult for partners, where partners didn't feel like they could trust, and so it always is a little bit of that arm's yeah. length, right? And it goes back to the TSR days. It has a lot of history to it, but the more yeah. that that Wizards, you know, you look at something like uh, Stranger Things, right, and and there's a scenario under which you could worry about it in some competitive way and to do so would be foolish. Right. And it's right. true about critical role and it's true about acquisitions incorporated. And it's true about cold press and Ghostfire games and all those, like you, yeah. you want all this to grow because that actually does elevate everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. More Thanks not so less. Much. Well, I yeah, really, but... really appreciate your coming on. Uh, thank you to be willing to do this. It's not easy. Uh, I can't imagine being in your shoes and, and, and for wizards to agreeing to do this, it does really mean a lot for you to reach out to the community like this. Thank you yeah. So well, thank you. I mean, all I wanted was a conversation and that's what we got today. So <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks. Next time we'll talk about your campaign. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks. Well, everyone, I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Kyle Brink. Really appreciate his coming on the show. Um, and we really appreciate you because I'm pretty sure there's no way Wizards of the Coast would have contacted me uh, a year ago 
without the support of the people that support me on Patreon. So thank you to my Patreon supporters and the people that support the show Mastering Dungeons on Patreon. We really, truly, truly appreciate it. It means a lot to us and hopefully it will enable more fantastic things uh, like this. So we want to thank the Master of Dungeons supporters who keep the show going, Master of Realms, whose names appear in our show notes. Uh, and in our show notes, you'll find a full copy of this, um, of this interview, uh, all the notes that I provided, all the questions that I had. I didn't get to all the questions uh, because time was short, so I had to pick and choose. So you can look over those and enjoy uh, which ones I skipped over at the last second as I tried to make the most of the time I had. Um, so thank you to all the Master of Dungeons, the Master of Realms, and for the Master of the Multiverse, really appreciate Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John Carney, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermay, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Leitman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, Micro Ant, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo, Krishna Simons, Joe Tyler, Matias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you all so much for your support. We truly, truly appreciate this. You can find us if you want to join the Patreon at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. And you can find Sean at Sean Merwin on Twitter. You can find me at alphastream.org. Let's go kill some monsters with the OGL.